In Deuteronomy 16, uh, it's a chapter about three of the, I believe it's seven feasts that the Israelites celebrate. And these three feasts are their most important feasts, their holy of holiest days. And I think it's so special because each holiday for the Israelites was a reminder of the Lord and of the things of God. And for the parents here, I just encourage you, the holidays, do you take time to separate, clear the schedule, not just for fun, not just for enjoyment, not just for family time, that's important as well, but to take a step back and be mindful of all that the Lord has done for you and done for your family. And then at the end, we'll look at the importance of justice and good judges and good rulers. So, Chapter 16, the first feast is the Passover. The Passover reviewed may, might be in your heading. If you want to do more research on the Passover, you could look at Exodus 12, Exodus 23, and Exodus 34 as well. So verses 1 and 2, it says, Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night, Therefore you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. So the nation of Israel was to celebrate their past, celebrate their past and to celebrate all that God has done for them, all together and united as one. Every single family was supposed to come to Jerusalem and celebrate this together. This was their New Year's celebration, was to consider what God has done for them, how he and he alone through his power and his might freed Israel from their slavery and destroyed the Egyptian forces, army, and government. And I think this is a lot better than getting hammered on New Year's Eve or watching the ball drop in New York City or eating 12 grapes. Does any Cuban know why we eat 12 grapes on New Year's Eve? I, I don't know, right? But you could turn to Exodus chapter 12, and we'll read a little bit more of that original day. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Verse 1 says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So here God's saying, I'm going to completely change your calendar. Your calendar is going to be reset, and now this month is going to be your first month. Verse 3, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. According to the house of, of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the numbers of persons. So you could share a lamb if your household was too small. But verse 5 is so important for us. The lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So originally, each home had to take one lamb or one goat without blemish, sacrifice it, then take the blood and put it on the doorposts, making these two crosses over the doors. But now in this celebration, years afterwards, Israel was to celebrate this day together, whether it's at the tabernacle or at the temple. All of the men of Israel were to go to wherever the tabernacle or temple was and celebrate this together. For us as New Testament believers, you can have a Passover Seder if you'd like. We've done it a few times and it's a great joy. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, it tells us, Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So for us as New Testament believers, our Passover lamb is Jesus Christ. 
And now what we celebrate, you're free to celebrate the Passover if you'd like, but what we are to celebrate in God's power freeing us from slavery, God's power destroying our old enemy and old slavery is celebrating communion. And that's why we take communion each first Wednesday because we are celebrating what God has done for us. We are celebrating our Passover lamb, which is Jesus Christ. And having communion consistently was the standard operating procedure of the early church. In Acts 2, 42, it tells us that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayer. And then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. These four things led to exponential growth within the church, also a fear of the Lord, and a unity of believers, which was truly remarkable. We can turn to 1 Corinthians 11. We're getting ahead of our communion service, but we see how in 1 Corinthians 11, instead of celebrating how God has delivered us from Egypt, we are celebrating the blood and death and burial of Jesus Christ for us. Paul tells the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take Eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now imagine if our whole nation on New Year's Eve, or at least every believer on New Year's Eve, every Christian, every disciple, every so-called believer, instead of getting drunk or hammered or plastered or just being a glutton on New Year's Eve, we would pause and take communion to be mindful of Jesus' death and sacrifice for us, to be mindful of his body being beaten and bruised and his blood spilled for us, proclaiming his death and resurrection and our freedom from sin. Imagine if this was the way we would end each year and begin each year. Imagine the unity that would come for each and every one of us and our families, our households, the forgiveness that we would give to one another, the rejoicing we would have if we would take time to examine ourselves Remembering who we used to be, remembering the power of Christ, and remembering who we are able to be today because of the death and blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 3 and 4, it says, You shall eat no unleavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction. I don't know if anybody would order that on the menu, right? The bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrificed the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. I've heard different people in Israel saying being in Israel during the Passover is a sight to be seen because all the restaurants, all the homes are throwing the leaven out of their homes, out of their restaurants for this week. And during the first Passover, God commanded them to make bread with no leaven because of the sake of time. 
They had to be ready to leave in a moment's notice. The moment that Pharaoh would release them, they had to be ready to go. They couldn't wait till the bread rose to the perfect amount and then bake it for the perfect amount of time. No, they had to be ready to go in an instant. That's why the Lord also commanded them to eat the meal while they had their sandals on. In a culture where they were constantly told to wash their feet before they would enter the home or before they would eat a meal. However, for us later on, we can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We read, or I read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7 for you earlier, but now we'll look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 6 through 8, it warns us. It warns us about our sin, about our pride, about wickedness and hypocrisy. Because in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6, Paul says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Leaven is a symbol and type of sin and of the flesh in our lives. And what we are called to do as believers, since Jesus has been our sacrifice, our Passover, is now we need to live a life with no leaven. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And that is the danger for us. Leaven, we see it there in verse 8, it's malice and wickedness. Jesus warns us in Mark chapter 8, verse 15, he said, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Okay, Jesus, what's the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod? He tells us, he gives us the answer. In Luke chapter 12, verse 1, he says, The leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So it's not that now we're no longer allowed to eat Cuban bread or pizza or subs or anything like that. For us as New Testament believers, what we have to be careful of is, Lord, is there hypocrisy rising up in me? Lord, is there malice rising up in me? Lord, is there just an ounce, <coughs> is there just five grams of wickedness within me? Again, if you've ever baked anything with leaven, if you just add five grams of leaven to, a bre to dough, it starts rising. You just add 25 grams, right? That's maybe like a tablespoon of it. The thing starts growing like crazy. And the same is true for us when it comes to sin. Just a little bit of pride, just a tiny bit of hypocrisy, a little bit of malice, a little bit of wickedness puffs us up. And it can quickly get us to think that we are better than other people. That the church is filled with hypocrites, but somehow we are the perfect saint everywhere we go. We need to be careful, because as you guys said, Galatians 5.9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And again, our God is such a God of order. Notice the order. In verse 1 and 2, he demands a perfect, uh, spotless lamb with no blemish to be sacrificed, verses 1 and 2. Then in verses 3 and 4, he demands no leaven within the homes. David Guzik, he points this out. He says, the purity of the feast of unleavened bread followed the blood deliverance of the Passover. We can only walk in purity before the Lord after we've received the blood deliverance at the cross. That's so awesome. I don't know if you're excited about that. I get excited about that. Because the only way we can live a blameless life, the only way we can live a life freed from sin is if we've accepted the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We cannot do it in our own strength. No matter what self-discipline video you try to hype yourself up on. In our own strength, we cannot overcome sin. But if we put our faith in Jesus Christ and his blood and his sacrifice, then Romans 6 tells us we are no longer slaves of sin. And make no mistake, Jesus Christ had, uh, God had Jesus Christ sacrificed on no other weekend but the Passover. 
And oftentimes, many essential days of church history happened during one of the feasts. Jesus was sacrificed on the Passover. We know that John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus in John chapter 1, says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. In John 19, it tells us in verse 14 that it was the preparation day of the Passover. And this is when he tells the group of people, Behold your King, Pontius Pilate. But they said, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. And they take Jesus away to be crucified on no other weekend but on Passover weekend. 1 Peter 1.19 tells us that it's the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot who was foreordained. Before the foundation of the world, but was manifest at these last times for you. And as we read in Exodus 12, 5, the lamb for the Passover couldn't be just any lamb. It needed to be a lamb without blemish. Our God is such a God of order and detail. And he creates this idea of this Passover feast. He plans with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit before we were even an idea. He pre-planned all of this before the foundation of the world. We jump back to Deuteronomy 16, verse 5 through 8. He says, You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates which the Lord your God gives you, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, At the time you came out of Egypt, and you shall roast and eat it in the place where the Lord your God chooses, and in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. Once again, this is a whole lot of slaughtering, butchering and sacrificing for the priests to do. Original Passover, each family, they sacrificed their own lamb. But now each man would come to the tabernacle or come to the temple to make their sacrifice all together as an entire nation. And what a unifying celebration for the whole nation to come and do together. One of the biggest... Passover feasts happens in 2 Chronicles 30. And you see the joy of the Israelites here in this feast. In 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 21, it tells us that Israel, that Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread for seven days with great gladness. And that the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord, accompanied by loud instruments. Those people that don't like loud worship, it's not biblical, right? It says loud instruments. And then Hezekiah gave encouragement to the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord. So we have worship, then we have the teaching of the Lord, and then they ate throughout the feast seven days offering peace offerings, and making confession to the Lord God of their fathers. They enjoyed the Passover so much that in verse 23, it says the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days. Imagine if we had that power, right? Christmas break, you're like, hey, let's do this for another two weeks. This is awesome. And then they continue, they keep it another seven days with gladness. Why is this? Because Hezekiah, the king I love this. He says, he gave a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep, and the leaders gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep. It's a whole lot of barbecue to eat for two weeks. Then the whole assembly of Judah rejoiced, also the priests and the Levites, all the assembly that came from Israel, and the sojourners who came from the land of Israel, and those who dwelt in Judah. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. 
Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer come up to his holy dwelling place to heaven. Family, our feasts, our holidays should be times of joy and celebration. It should be times of gratitude, of praying, times in the word, times of worship, times of asking forgiveness of our sins, times of great food. If we can afford it, we should celebrate and have joy with our families, our home, and our fellow believers. The next feast is the Feast of Weeks, or many of us will probably know it as the Feast of Pentecost. It's found in verses 9 through 12. If you want to research this further, it's found in Exodus 34, Leviticus 23, and in Numbers 28. It tells us in verse 9, you shall count seven weeks for yourselves. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. So the first harvest, you count seven weeks, and then that's when you're supposed to have the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a free will offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. This feast of Pentecost, this feast of weeks was attached to the harvest of Israel. God commanded the nation of Israel to celebrate God's gift of the harvest with a free will offering and time of rejoicing before the Lord. God commanded them to give of their first fruits into the proportion that their hearts viewed God's blessings upon them. And I think that's so important because some people can have a huge amount of God's blessings but because their, their view is so skewed, they see that God has given them barely anything. And then you have someone that in our eyes, you go on mission trips, people with so little, and what they see is that God has blessed them with these great blessings. What is your view of God's blessing upon your lives? More than likely, it's attached to your free will offerings to the Lord. The, the free will of your time, the free will of your tithe, the free will of your service, no doubt, is attached to your view and gratitude of how God has blessed you. In verse 11 and 12, he says, You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow, who are among you at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Did we read about any sacrifices within this Feast of Pentecost? No, because there were none. This Passover lamb has already been sacrificed in the first feast, and now we simply get to celebrate. The Israelites simply got to come and rejoice over the harvest, rejoice over how far God has brought them, and rejoice before the Lord their God. Rejoice with their sons, with their daughters, with their servants, the Levites, the orphans, and the widows. Rejoice for what God has done in them. That word rejoice, it's to be joyful, to be glad. It is to gloat. It describes a state and agitation of rejoicing, of being happy. It is sheer pleasure and sheer delight in what God has done. Hey, does that describe you? So-and-so, they are just in a state of sheer delight, pleasure, and gladness over what God has done in their lives. We should be rejoicing in the Lord our God. A few psalms here. Psalm 5, verse 11 and 12, it says, But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defended them. Let those who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. Psalm 9, verse 2 and 3 says, I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And when my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish 
at your presence. Psalm 16, 8 and 9 says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Psalm 19, it says in verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. One last verse on this, Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. It says, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Again, family, are we known by our rejoicing? Are we known by our joy? If we're honest, there are many believers that act much more like Eeyore than they do like Tigger. I don't know if you've watched Winnie the Pooh recently, right? But they're just always depressed. They're always sad. They're always bummed. There's no joy in what God has freed them from. And I believe it's they've lost focus on who they used to be. They've lost focus on where they were in Egypt. We lose focus on the slavery we were in. We lose focus on where we were at in our sins and in our minds and what we used to be doing instead of having this joy of the Lord as our strength. I encourage you, rejoice in the Lord your God. Come back to the house of prayer and rejoice in the Lord your God. The original Feast of Pentecost is found in Leviticus 23. And in verse 17, it speaks of two loaves of bread that were baked with leaven. Can you imagine that? Baked with leaven, these two loaves of bread, one Cuban roll and one Puerto Rican roll, right? And they're there and they sacrifice it before the Lord their God. Remember how I mentioned that there were no mistakes with God and these feasts. That most of the feasts were attached to an essential day of church history. And we can turn to Acts chapter 2. These loaves of leavened bread here, Acts chapter 2, we see the Lord. He had the Passover lamb sacrificed for us. Who is that Passover lamb? It's Jesus Christ. And now here... In Acts chapter 2, we see a great harvest and a great celebration, a great rejoicing taking place all over Acts chapter 2. We'll skip around here a little bit. Verses 1 through 4, it tells us, When the day of Pentecost, this Feast of Weeks, had fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This day, this feast of Pentecost. It tells us now in verses 5 through 8 that they were Jews and that there were also men from every nation under heaven. I won't have time to go through it, but you see all of these different cities, all of these different nations that were all there. But it tells us in verse 6 that everyone heard them speak in their own language. And they were all amazed and marveled and said, Look, were not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we each hear in our own language in which we were born? So now there's many men of many different nations hearing the word of the Lord in their own tongue. Then Peter gives this dynamite sermon in verses 14 through 39. He's giving this sermon in front of the same Pharisees that had just put Jesus to death 43 days earlier. But then what happens in Acts chapter 2 verse 41? Those who gladly... They rejoicingly received his words, were baptized, and that day, we see a huge harvest here. 3,000 souls were added to them. Again, our Lord, how he doesn't make any mistakes. 
we see this huge harvest filled with the leavened bread of the Gentiles and also the unleavened bread of the Jews. And we see great rejoicing and unity because of what God has done in their lives. Then as a free will offering, at the end of Acts chapter 2, we see that each man was giving out of their own heart and giving it to the body and the church and just this free will offering to the Lord their God. Now we go to Deuteronomy 16, this last feast, probably the funnest for the kids. You get to camp out for a whole week in your backyard. The Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It's also found in Leviticus 23 and it's also found in Numbers 29. In verse 13, it says, You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days, when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your winepress, and you shall rejoice. Once again, a time of rejoicing in your feast. You and your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow who are within your gates. Seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you surely rejoice. The first feast of tabernacles found in Leviticus 23 was a time to celebrate God's care and protection for the Israelites during their years of wandering in the wilderness. Their years of living in tents. Imagine going on a 38-year camping trip. Imagine that, right? I don't want to imagine that. I mean, imagine that. This is what they did. And it tells us that their sandals didn't wear out. Their clothing did not wear out. And God provided food from heaven and water out of rocks for the people. It's a reminder to us that God will provide for us. God will provide. We are to work. We are to labor like the birds of the air labor. But we don't have to worry. Our God will provide for us. In this feast in Leviticus 23, verse 39, it tells us that it was seven days that the first day there was to be a Sabbath day. And then on the eighth day, there's to be another Sabbath rest day. And our God, he likes us to rest. He likes us to rest in him, to have a holy rest in him. This is where we literally get our word holiday from, holy day. This is where we get these holidays from. Because God wants us to take a time, stop working, and rest in him. Even God the Father, when he created the heavens and the earth, was he tired or exhausted? Did he finish the sixth day and say, woof, I'm exhausted? No, he rested in order to show us that we need to rest in him. And God likes us to rest, but God wants us to do this rest and celebration with the whole family, with the group of believers, with servants, strangers, orphans, widows, even the pastor. God wants us to celebrate in social settings. Our God desires that we be social people. Maybe you don't like that, but that's what is biblical. Again, it's hard to share the gospel if we are anti-social people and cling to our fleshly desires in being a hermit. I was reading a book today, and it literally says there's no room for hermits in the ministry. There's no room for that. God calls us to be social and to be around one another and celebrate with one another. In Leviticus 23, verse 42 through 43, it tells us that they were to dwell in booths or dwell in tents. For us, a booth is what you sit at in a restaurant. You don't sit in a restaurant for a whole week. But you are to dwell in a tent for a whole week. And then it tells us that your generations those younger than you, may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And just put yourself in a kid's sandals here, right? How exciting this must have been. You take a break, your parents take a week off of work, your whole life is about farming. Your whole life is about ranching, moving cattle, harvest, field, hard labor, 
And now your parents take a whole week off and you now live in a tent in your backyard. And this was all done so that fathers and grandfathers could dwell in tents with their kids, gather on the campfire, and talk about how God provided for them. Talk about how God loved them. Talk about how God cared for them and how God freed them from their sins. That they were all children of God and how it was God and his power that brought them out and that the Lord their God was their God. Parents, do you ever have fun with your kids? When you share the gospel, when you talk about the Bible, do you ever have fun with them? Or is every time you bring out the Bible when you're going to spank them or when you're going to bring the rod out or when you're telling them that they have to obey? Each time you talk about God, is it always punishment and judgment and the wrath of God? Or do you take a week-long camping trip to do nothing but talk about the Lord, His goodness, His love, and His provision? This Feast of Tabernacles reminds us our God, He's the God of the universe, but He's also the God of our homes and private. He wants us to take time with our family, to take time to worship him, to take time with our friends and worship and celebrate the Lord our God. This Feast of Tabernacles reminds us that we are living in tents, but God will always provide. We need to be reminded this world is not our home. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 tells us, For we know that if our earthly house this tent is destroyed we have a building from God a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens we are living in a Coleman tent on this side of heaven but one day we're going to be given our true homes and that's not actual homes and mansions oftentimes we hear about the mansions in heaven we think of Coco Plum or Star Island that's going to be my house no it's this this body this Mortal will put on immortality and we will be given our resurrected perfect bodies. When it comes to prophecy, we know that our final rest will come when Jesus rules and reigns. It was mentioned in the men's conference, a book by A.W. Tozer, Battleground or Playground. And how many believers we've allowed the American dream to trump the reality of our lives as Christians. We need to be about our Father's business. We need to do the work of the Lord. Our time of rest comes when we're on the other side of heaven. Now we've literally read three holidays that God picked to rest. So it's not that God wants us to work 24-7, but this world is not our home. Our lives should not just be about comfort and planning the next vacation and the next time off and the next comfortable thing. Our life is to be about our Father's business. We will rest when Jesus comes to rule and reign and make all things right. Even during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, there's going to be vacation. And we're going to all meet at Jerusalem and worship the true king. We will rejoice and celebrate this very Feast of Tabernacles. If you're quick, you could turn to Zechariah chapter 14. And here we get this prophecy of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. We believe the rapture takes place first, then the seven-year tribulation happens, then at the end of the seven-year tribulation, the thousand-year millennial reign begins, and we rule and reign with Jesus Christ. Many of us, our jobs will be dependent on our faithfulness to Jesus Christ in this life. The whole idea of rewards and work in the millennial reign is dependent on how faithful and how much we work in this life for the Lord. But in Zechariah chapter 14 verse 16, it tells us, It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. We come back to Deuteronomy 16. 
And we finish up here, 16, verse 16. It says, three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the feasts of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God which he has given you. There's about seven feasts that the Israelites would celebrate, but these three were the most important to the Lord. And he commanded that the men go up three times a year for these feasts in Jerusalem. It's so interesting how Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun, and there's some believers that they want to go back to the law, and they want to start doing the things of the law once again, no pork, no shellfish. They want to start going to church only on Saturdays. They wear the prayer tassels. But do they go to Jerusalem three times a year? Because it's here in the law. But that's a separate teaching. Jesus, we know, was a good Jewish boy and a good Jewish man. In Luke chapter 2, verse 41, we see that his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. This is when he's 12 years old and the parents... Parents, if you think you're bad parents because you left your kids at the supermarket, don't worry. Martha and Joseph, they left them for, I think it's like a week before they realized that they didn't know where Jesus was. We also know Jesus later on in life, in John chapter 7, he went up to the feasts as well. And oftentimes Jesus would go to the temple during these different feasts. We end here in Deuteronomy 16, verse 18 through the end of the chapter and it's so incredible how God has put within each and every one of us this desire for justice, this desire for righteousness, that when unfair things happen, there's a certain amount of our stomach turning in each and every one of us, especially when it happens against us. When we're dealt the unfair hand, that's especially when our stomach turns. But in verse 18 and 19, he says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. See, our God, he knows that we are prone to sin, and we are prone to use our power to our own advantage. Here he says that you need to pick men who are just to, in order to be judges, each tribe. The idea of the gates, if you've been with us to Israel, at the entrance of each city, you have this pinch point of walls, and all the walls would turn harshly a bunch of right angles so an army couldn't just bulldoze their way into a city. There'd be a pinch point where the whole army would be funneled and stuck. But also it'd be a place where you'd have a judge at the gate of the city and he would determine whether people could come in or not. Whether someone was a spy or evil or if they were good. You can think of Lot, how Lot was on the walls of the city being one of the judges. But we are not to show partiality in our justice. We are not to take bribes in our justice. How much of the problems in America would be fixed if we would just follow verse 19 here? No one in government can be richer when they get out of government than when before they got in. No one's allowed to buy a bunch of stocks before they put a law into effect the week afterwards. Again, so much of our justice in our nation would be fixed if we just be obedient to verse 18 and 19. A few Proverbs and a verse from Ecclesiastes, it tells us in Proverbs 17.23, a wicked man accepts a bribe behind the back to pervert the ways of justice. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 7, it says, surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. In Proverbs chapter 24, verse 23 through 25, it says, These things also belong to the wise. It is not good to show partiality in judgment. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, 
Him the people will curse. Nations will abhor him, but those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. Even within the book of James, there's a warning for us as believers to show partiality to people inside of church. Could you imagine that? People in church showing partiality? We couldn't even fathom it, right? James chapter 2, verse 4 through 6, it warns us of judging people by their appearance. That if we see someone, whether we think they look like they're a homeless person, or perhaps they have too many tattoos for our comfort, their hair is too crazy, their beard is too long, whatever the case may be, and now we show them partiality, we know that God, he hates this. We need to be even keel with our judgment. He tells us in verse 20 of Deuteronomy 16, you shall follow what is altogether just that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Again, God has a blessing for the nation of Israel, but they had to continue in obedience to inherit the full blessing that God had for them. We can turn quickly to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. And what are you dwelling on? What are you meditating on? What are you bringing into your eyes? I know I can be tempted at times when there's great tragedies. Even within this past month and the atrocities that happened in Israel, I can be tempted to just dwell on the atrocities that have happened, trying to watch every picture or every video, trying to watch what has happened and taken place. And it's important to know what's going on, but Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 tells us, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Maybe you're going through a difficulty with someone. Instead of just meditating, I can't believe they did this to me. And we can, we can boil ourselves over in just the anger of what's happening in our lives. Bible says don't, don't meditate on those things. Meditate on what's true and noble and just and pure and lovely and a good report and virtuous and praiseworthy. Meditate on these things. We need to follow what is just and meditate on these good things that we'd be able to live and inherit this blessed life that God has for us. You think of David. Did David not have a temptation to meditate on the unfair hand that he was dealt? King Saul took my wife. King Saul took my home. King Saul took my job. King Saul took a lot from David. And he, did, he didn't just sit there meditating on that. No, he meditated. We see throughout the book of Psalms. He meditated on the Lord. He meditated on his goodness. He meditated on his forgiveness in his life. Finally, verse 21 and 22, it says, You shall not plant for yourselves any tree as a wooden image near the altar which you, you build for yourself to the Lord your God. You shall not set up a sacred pillar which the Lord your God hates. Again, the Lord God wanted to be worshipped in the way he instructed his people to worship him. He did not want his people taking ideas or ways of worship from other gods or other religions and now bringing that in the way that they would worship him. I believe it's the Ashtaroth and they would set up these pillars or wooden images attached to a tree and that's the way they would worship the Lord their God. Here God says, hey, I have one altar and that one altar is either at the tabernacle or at the temple. And for us, the only place of worship and sacrifice to truly praise God is through Jesus Christ. It's through his sacrifice, his blood, him being that great Passover lamb for us. So I encourage you, what a joy to be able to take vacation time to celebrate with your family, celebrate with your kids all that the Lord has done for us. What a healthy thing for us to do. We see just this repeating that God desired for the parents, these Israelite parents, to have for their own kids. 
And we should do the same thing. Paul says it. Peter says it. Hey, for me to repeat these things to you, it's not burdensome, but it is needful. So for the parents here, the grandparents here, man, keep washing your kids with the word. Keep telling them again the things God has done in you. Do your kids know your testimony? I tell you, I'll end with this last story. Worship team, you can come up. Was it this morning? I think, yeah, it was this morning. Uh, Pastor Raz, my dad, on the radio program, he said, the question was, is it more difficult to trust in God at the beginning, the middle, or the end of your life? Now, my kids are now 10, 7, and 5 years old, but my 7-year-old calls in and goes, I think it's more difficult to trust in God at the beginning of life because my dad, at the beginning of his life, he fell away from the Lord. That's straight up what she says on the radio for everybody to know. But why does she know that? Because I've shared my testimony with the kids. Dad hasn't been perfect all his life. Dad grew up in church, and yet he walked away. He didn't follow the Lord, but by the grace of God, he brought me back. He called me back. So share your testimony with your kids. I don't go, I don't go into explicit detail right now. Later on, they'll get the full version, but at their age, what they can understand, what they can handle, let them know. Dad and mom, we, did, we weren't just born Christians and always Christians and perfect Christians. No, dad and mom, they need the grace and forgiveness of Jesus in their lives. And that's going to remind them when they fail, when they mess up, there's a God out there that forgave my dad. There's a God out there that sent his only son to die for my dad. What if I call out to him too? So hey, let's all stand and we'll close in worship. If you need prayer, there'll be pastors up front for prayer. And Lord, we just thank you, Lord. Thank you for just, Lord, the God of the universe, Lord, how you created the heavens and the earth and yet, Lord, you tell us to take time with our families, take time with our friends, take time, Lord, even with strangers, with new people, Lord, and to just celebrate and rejoice in what you've done for us. And, Lord, we do. We pray for our family, Lord, our friends, those even here today that if they're in a season of, Lord, not rejoicing, but a season of weeping, Lord, help us to weep with those who weep, Lord, and rejoice with those who rejoice. But Lord, help us to not allow these difficult times to cloud our judgment and to blind our vision from your greatness, your love, and your mercy. Lord, help us to indeed meditate on these things that are good and noble, Lord. Thank you, God. And Lord, we do. We intercede for those who are hurting, those who have lost, those who are going through death, God, those who are taking care of that mom or dad that's getting older and older, Lord. We just pray that you'd be with us, Lord, in the mundane, in the everyday, Lord, in the trials and difficulties, Lord. We call out to you and thank you that you are the God that sees, you are the God that hears, you are the God that wants to identify with us. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you, Jesus, and it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.